Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Future of Health with Providence. I'm your host, Mary Renoff, bringing you the latest in healthcare trends and news each week. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Ira Bayak, the founder and chief medical officer at the Institute for Human Caring, and we're talking about psychedelics and realizing well-being through the end of life. Remember, everyone, if you have questions for our expert, please share them with us on social media. We can be found on Twitter under Providence and under Providence Health System on Instagram and Facebook. Use the hashtag Future of Health and we'll be on the lookout for your questions. Before we start, I want our listeners to know that the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult a healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. So let's get started by welcoming our guest, one of my favorites, Dr. Ira Bayak. Dr. Bayak, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself? Hi, good morning. Uh, I uh, am a palliative care physician. I uh, started my medical career as a family doctor, ended up practicing emergency medicine for about 15 years, but along the way was always taking care of people who were facing the end of life through hospice. And as it emerged and I contributed to its emergence through uh, palliative care, um, I came to uh, Providence because uh, I realized there was an opportunity to take the knowledge, attitudes, and skills that we call palliative care and, and use those to drive healthcare transformation across an entire system. And that's what we're doing through the Institute for Human Caring. We are basically a quality improvement engine within this large Providence Health System that is driving change from kind of a problem-based um, transactional model of healthcare to a more relation-based, holistic model of caring for whole persons. So we are we are really um, this is true healthcare transformation. It's frankly made possible from uh, the shift nationally from volume-based healthcare, you know, more is better, to value-based healthcare, where we're actually measuring the outcomes to patients uh, and their health. Uh, not just the amount of uh, uh, diagnostic tests and treatments we can provide. So that I saw this as a moment in the evolution of American healthcare where we could actually drive change uh, to whole persons, caring for whole persons. I love it. And, and you do talk a lot about whole person care. I, I hate to go so basic on you, but for those listening, Talk to me about the difference between palliative care and hospice care, because I think a lot of people assume they're the same and they're not. The confusion is understandable because um, palliative care in America grew out of the hospice model of care. So hospice is an interdisciplinary team-based approach where clinicians of various disciplines, doctors, nurses, nurse practitioners, social workers, chaplains, clinical pharmacists, occupational and rehab therapists all get together and and focus their creative energies on creating a holistic model of caring for seriously ill and dying patients in the context of their homes and families, right? Um, Palliative care grew out of that model, realizing that this interdisciplinary holistic approach was helping people uh, feel better, uh, their quality of life improved, Uh, And many times, even though they were in hospice care, acknowledging that they were expected to die, people were living longer. And so those of us in the mid-1990s looked around and said, well, you know, hospice works great, right? Um, People feel better. uh, Their families do better. uh, They're spending more time out of the hospital. They're, They're actually living, a few of them are living longer. 
why are we forcing people to accept that they're dying to get this level of, of service, right? It's cost effective, it's value, better quality at lower costs. And we decided to create this model of, of palliative care, uh, taking away the requirement that you uh, accept that you're dying and the requirement that you give up treatments focused on, on fighting your disease and hopefully intended to help you live longer in order to get this comprehensive model for your comfort and quality of life and your family's uh, quality of life as well. And so palliative care is, is uh, much like hospice care without that requirement of accepting your dying and giving up treatments for your disease. Well, how, I'm going to flip the switch a little bit, but how has the work of palliative care and the way which you deliver it changed recently with COVID and this, this pandemic of shelter in place and that sort of thing? COVID has forced us all to be very creative, right? We, we can't go into rooms with patients for fear of uh, their getting their infection or, or potentially even infecting them for, or our germs that we're carrying from our, our, our own bodies or from others that we've just uh, uh, seen down the hall. So we've had to think about how we can deliver care in, in non-direct ways um, through the doctors and nurses who are already seeing them, the emergency department, uh, hospital medicine, critical care doctors and nurses. Uh, we have been uh, sourcing them with uh, uh, the knowledge of what we call primary palliative care. Some of the techniques of, of advanced communication that palliative care uh, providers use day in and day out. Um, some of the uh, uh, sources of, of symptom assessment and management. How do you, how do you uh, treat pain uh, when uh, it's not you know, rapidly responsive to the usual first-line pain medications. Those are the sorts of things that uh, palliative care doctors and nurses and social workers do in day in and day out. We've been we've been trying to use our colleagues to to provide that level of service. Additionally, of course, we've turned to uh, telehealth and and uh, uh, electronic uh, platforms to uh, communicate with patients and their families and, and preserve those connections between people that again are so much part and parcel of, of what we do in, in palliative care. So a lot of our teams may be at home or even in the hospital, but still choosing to communicate with uh, patients through uh, tablets, uh, uh, you know, iPads and, and similar Android uh, based tablets uh, and doing those advanced communication uh, assessing patients uh, for symptoms and and even prescribing medications without actually physically being in the same room. Well, technology has impacted every part of our lives around COVID, but you, you mentioned medication and I'm going to finally get us to the reason that we're here today, uh, which is that we, other than that we love to talk to you about the work that you and your team do, but the latest discussions around the use of psychedelic drugs in palliative care. Um, and as one of the leading experts, we wanted to have you share more with our listeners just about this topic. You know, I'm, I'm just a learner. I'm a serious student of, of psychedelics. I, har I hardly feel like an expert. Uh, I, uh, I have been watching the uh, evolution of psychedelic-assisted therapies for a very long time. I mean, I was introduced to psychedelics like so many people of my generation when I was in college, and, and psychedelics were, in fact, 
um, uh, we thought one of the, you know, recreational drugs, you know, like alcohol or marijuana or, you know, so many of the other uh, things that were um, part of my, you know, college experience, frankly. Um, but I realized even then that psychedelics were a class different. These are not intoxicants in the usual um, um, way of thinking of these. They don't, they don't get you high. You're not, there's not that uh, um, euphoria or mental slowing or sleepiness that we associate with drug use. These are something else. It is a different experience. And, uh, and psychedelics, when they were introduced into the United States, actually were introduced through psychiatry and very uh, routine orthodox medical practice, right? Sandoz uh, had uh, the uh, patent for lysergic acid, acid, uh, acid what became known as um, LSD. And uh, it was being distributed to psychiatrists to use in their clinical practices as well as to research. Some of the early research in, this, in the United States was done in the 1950s and 60s uh, through the National Institutes of Mental Health. There was a place called Spring Grove, Maryland, where there was a whole center set up to study uh, the use of these medications. And remarkably, the, the, um, these medications were often used for people with persistent depression and what we would now call demoralization associated with terminal illness. Most of the patients who were enrolled in these trials had uh, cancer and were facing the end of their lives and were feeling helpless and hopeless and, and deeply depressed and anxious. And uh, the um, early psychedelic researchers used medications in a way that um, exploited their therapeutic benefits. They were, it was a safe environment where people could not hurt themselves, where they were um, uh, um, supported with usually two therapists at their side as they uh, uh, took these medications and the drug effects uh, came on. And then they were guided through a six or eight hour session. That's a long time for a therapist to be with Very them long time. Yeah. through these remarkable experiences. The short answer, and we'll come back to what that experience feels and, and, and uh, why it is therapeutic, but the, the, the results were quite remarkable. Uh, 60 to 80% of the people who had these experiences felt it changed their outlook on life. That while still knowing that they were in the last months or weeks of life, they, they felt like they had a new sense of the value of each day that life was once again worth living. And again, these were not intoxicants. They, they did not you know, um, uh, go on to, to feel woozy or to need medications every day. This sense of a new perspective was durable for many weeks. And so you know, I've been watching this um, uh, research for a long time. As you know, during the early 1970s, for political reasons, um, all research and therapeutic use of these drugs suddenly stopped. They were associated with, with the social upheavals of uh, the, uh, the, in the 19, late 1960s and early 1970s, the anti-war movement and uh, uh, President Nixon and, and uh, you know, uh, his attorney general, uh, John um, um, 
Yes, I'll remember it in a moment. Uh, We're gonna have a history lesson later. <laughs> uh, they all just uh, they all just uh, stopped it. Um, so uh, no research. The field of palliative medicine hadn't existed yet, and as the field of palliative medicine sort of began to develop, and we were uh, dealing with people who had suffering and anxiety um, near the end of life, uh, I could find nothing referencing this early work at the National Institutes of Mental Health in, in palliative medicine, and that's always seemed to me to be peculiar. Now, and it was John Mitchell who was uh, Nixon's attorney general, now, we're seeing a, a, a renewed emphasis on looking at what we can do to give the best care possible to patients uh, facing the end of life. And psychedelics warrant another fresh look. Well, especially when you say 50 to 60% of people were seeing positive results. That's, I mean, that's more than half and it's, and you don't see that a lot. And then you said weeks, positive effect for weeks. It's actually, it's actually 60 to 80%. And indeed, it's not just weeks, but in most of the uh, current research, it's for many months. So just to, you know, just think about that. You have one drug experience that lasts six to eight hours, but your sense of uh, uh, feeling less depressed, less anxious can last for many months without having to take medications every day. This is something that warrants our attention. In the first article I wrote about uh, psychedelics called Taking Psychedelics Seriously, I decided to kind of come out of the closet to my palliative care academic colleagues and say, look, you know, there are there's some suffering we, we are having difficulty alleviating, some this depression, anxiety, demoralization. We have medications that years ago were shown to be uh, highly effective with uh, effects lasting for months. Um, let's distinguish skepticism, which is warranted from cynicism, which takes a non-critical negative attitude toward evidence and dismisses evidence that may be of value for our patients. I don't want us to be, or our patients to be victims of therapeutic nihilism when these medications warrant at least new sophisticated research to see if their therapeutic benefit actually bears out. I can't think of another treatment, especially drug related, that that lasts that long and is that effective. And and when I do think of those kind of things, I typically think of more like narcotics and things that become addictive. What is is it addictive to be on these? No, not at all. In fact, uh, the analogy I like to think about is um, antibiotics. Right. Okay. You know, if you if you have a serious life threatening uh, condition and antibiotics uh, over a course of, you know, a few days or a week or so of treatments can cure you of that infection. You don't need antibiotics every day. Right. Your your condition is is better. You're at a new normal that doesn't involve uh, having to continue to fight uh, an infection. You, we, we can talk more about this, but but that's that's the better analogy here. I like it. I like it. Plus, we don't have to equate it to something like substance abuse, addictive or narcotics. But we're going to take a quick break. And when we do, we're going to come back and we're going to talk more about psychedelics and the end of life care.
with Future of Health. I'm your host, Mary Renoff, and I'm joined today by Dr. Ira Bayak, one of my favorites, and we are talking about psychedelics as it relates to end-of-life care. So before the break, we talked a little bit about how long it works. How, we talked a little bit about the history behind it. Talk to me, though, answer a really basic question. How does it work? I mean, you talked about it can last for months. You talked about it's not every day. How is it really affecting the body? Psychedelics are active at the serotonin system in our central nervous system, right? The, the, the pathways that uh, of, of our neural networks. And uh, the um, explanations uh, really, I, I think, require whether we're talking about pharmacology, which is the serotonin system is disrupted uh, and uh, perturbed, or neurophysiology, where you're talking about the, uh, structures in the brain like the amygdala and the limbic system and the prefrontal cortex and their neural networks to our, our cortex, which makes us human, our thinking, our consciousness, uh, and, and connecting our emotions and our memories and associations to our thoughts in the present, uh, uh, or the psychology of what it feels like to, uh, and what the human experiences are of taking these drugs. All of those explanations kind of uh, happen simultaneously. So let me take a run at this. So you take this uh, drug, let's say uh, uh, LSD, or um, nowadays most, most of the medical researchers are using highly purified versions of psilocybin, which comes from psilocybin mushrooms. Um, but there are, there are other drugs as well, but those are the ones mainly being studied. Um, uh, we can talk about others if you want later. And, and the serotonin system is perturbed. And um, what Michael Pollan and others have called the default mode network, the associations where um, because of our, our memories and our experiences, we have learned and, and the, the neurons in our brain are, uh, are connected um, in a specific um, way, patterned connections where our uh, midbrains, our amygdala and, and limbic systems, which control uh, memory and, and feelings uh, and uh, our emotions, are connected to the, um, I'll just for simplicity say, the, the uh, cortex of the brain and our, our uh, conscious thoughts. And those patterns, if I see somebody, I have associations of previous um, conversations, the way I felt about them in the past, um, uh, things that we used to do together. And, I, and that happens not only with people, but with everything I see, uh, the, the environment, all, all of that is, is normal to me. It's assumed. I know about these things. While taking these medications, while during the phase that that they're that you're affected by them, all of that gets loose, and and you have to figure it out again, and that can be very frightening initially. Which is why, uh, in the therapeutic use of these drugs, there are always therapists at your side, at the patient's side, uh, guiding them through this. Uh, so that so as those associations get loose, you have a chance to ask yourself basic questions about what do I really feel 
about either this person or um, you know the the place that I live or the view that I'm seeing from where I'm sitting, uh, and you get to kind of figure it out again. What happens during that time is that uh, it's a, it's a bit like asking people what really matters most. You your core values, the motivations that we have as human animals are what comes to the fore. And what comes to the fore, if, if, you're, if you've uh, had proper preparation for this experience and you have therapists by your side who are reassuring you to simply go with the experience, to let your heart guide you in this, that uh, what comes to the fore is a sense of love for one another and because that's what, the way we're wired as human animals to love one another and a sense of life as inherently worth living. And so as you come back out of that experience, not uncommonly people have, um, have a refreshed sense that I know now what's really important and what was simply a baggage from my previous life and previous um, worries, uh, fears, uh, assumptions that weren't serving me well. I want to. I want to take this because I feel like that's just a beautiful state for anybody to get to. You know, I, I was asked. I, I was asked during an interview once. <laughs> um, uh, by somebody who was clearly skeptical, like, you, you know, it was another doctor who was interviewing me and said, come on, you mean, you know, this is too good to be true, really, you know, so you take a pill one day, yes, you have a six hour, eight hour session, and then everything's rosy, come on. And, and I said, okay, I get it, right? But let, let me give you a different analogy. Let's say that you're close friends with Elon Musk, Right. And one day, Elon, you know, uh, texts you, texts you and says, hey, uh, what are you doing tomorrow? You want to go to space? Right. I, I have a, I have two, you know, uh, spaces on on a SpaceX <laughs> ship. We'll go up. You'll be back by dinner time. What do you wow. think? Right. And you say, oh, well, OK. Right. <laughs> and you, so you drive your Tesla to uh, SpaceX. All right. And and you and Elon get, you know, shot up into space. And and during the ride up, you're scared. Things are shaking. You're wondering if this was a good idea. Oh, my gosh. How much danger am I in? Right. Which is kind of analog uh, an analogy to first taking these medications where during the first hour or two, things get really bendy. Right. Uh, things that you touch. You can see sounds become visions. You start to smell your environment and that becomes emotions. All of that, they call it synesthesias, where all of the, the associations in, in your brain kind of get loose. And then you reach this place where it's all very calm, right? You've, you've, you've gotten beyond Earth's gravity and you're floating. And you're suspended in space. Maybe you go out on a space walk in this analogy. 
right? And there you are, the galactic firmament all around you. You're enveloped in vacuum that is at once utterly empty and yet so full of stars and planets and galaxies. And you can see the Earth distant below you. And you know you're protected by these very thin layers of nylon and mylar and Kevlar and a tank of oxygen. And suddenly things look different. And it's not an intoxication. In fact, you feel as clear as you ever have. You're experiencing things you may never have quite experienced before. And suddenly you feel you have this sense of being at once infinitesimal. You're so small and insignificant and yet infinite. You're part of the entire universe. You are a legitimate part of everything there is. You are at once utterly vulnerable and yet in some sense unshakably confident in not just in your the spacesuit and your oxygen tank, uh, but in life, in the sense that you're part of this all. There's this inherent meaning, despite knowing that in a, in a sense you're, you're utterly insignificant. There is this completeness of this moment here and now within the infinite limitless expanse of all that is, all that was, all that will be. Whoa. Look at this, right? Yeah. And then you come back into the SpaceX and return to Earth. And by 8 p.m., you're driving back home, but you will never be the same. No, never. You expand perspective on the world and your own life seems more grounded, more reality-based than your previous experience, which was all about what needs to get done and the stuff I've, you know, the things I'm worried about in life. Everything, I mean, this is having your mind expanded, right? What we used to call having your mind blown in the 1920s. <laughs> but, but please understand that, you know, this, this change can be durable. This is the stuff that is life-changing. And so that's kind of what it feels like, in a sense, for people to go through this experience. It's a journey not out into space, but within the infinite space within our beings. Well, it, first of all, it sounds beautiful. And it reminds me a little bit, you know my people, we're Native American, the Lakota people are very big on peyote, but I think the distinction here is that you're doing it in a contained environment with, with therapists around you, because I think that's the biggest piece that would be concerning to me. And, and if I had a loved one who I potentially wanted to go through this treatment with, with you or someone on your team, that would be my concern is, is what happens if they, they go into this quote unquote trip like experience, how do we manage them? How do we make sure that it's a safe environment? You know, you mentioned uh, Native Americans and peyote and indigenous peoples have been using mushrooms and cacti uh, that have psychedelic properties for as long as there have been people. I mean, uh, archaeologists have found carvings of mushrooms in, in sites many, many tens of thousands of years old. This has been going on forever, right? Uh, shamans, uh, even today in Central and South America, are using ayahuasca uh, as well as peyote in rituals. 
And, and what we are doing in medicine is actually learning from them. So in those experiences, in those indigenous experiences, people have a careful preparation. It is done with a sense of real seriousness. It is, they, they go through um, uh, preparation for sometimes days, if not weeks, prior to earning the privilege of taking these uh, sacred uh, plants. And then during the experience, they are supported with uh, shamans being with them, with ritual music, with um, a, a collective supportive uh, uh, social environment of the other people in the experience. Uh, and then they debrief afterward and help understand what the um, what the plant medicine, which is often what they call it, has taught you. Right. Um, th this is a, I actually think that this is a safe and, and serious way of also experiencing uh, these medications. We in, in healthcare are are using that uh, notion that you have to prepare people. You have to screen patients carefully so that they don't have schizophrenic tendencies or uh, manic depressive tendencies, um, and then guide them through this experience uh, with a that they have been prepared to expect that there will be some frightening times, but they will be supported, and they will can always be confident of going with the experience rather than having to fight or flee from the experience. And with that. And with an integration session, one or two integration sessions after the experience, the vast majority of people who go through this in medical supervised circumstances uh, have a positive and sometimes life-changing experience. So talk to me, Dr. Bike, and I know we have to take some questions from social in a minute, but talk to me about what makes a good candidate for the psychedelic drug use. So we're talking about people who are with serious illness and who are facing uh, the end of their lives. But frankly, there are other uh, conditions that uh, psychedelics may be very helpful for. Uh, chronic depression. You know, we know that uh, people with uh, depression often have these patterned thoughts of failure. They, uh, they see themselves as helpless and hopeless and unworthy. And that's a self-fulfilling prophecy, if you will. Once you get into those patterns of, of uh, thought, you're, you're already kind of uh, lost. Um, and, and we know that medications like uh, the tricyclic antidepressants or the SSRIs or SSRNIs, uh, 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 the uh, uh, current medications, uh, are of value, but that value is limited. Uh, they have side effects. They have to be taken every day, sometimes more than once a day. Uh, they have withdrawal syndromes so that you can't stop them quickly. Uh, and people, while they may diminish depression, they also often leave people feeling blunted, that they can't really experience the heights of joy either. Uh, so clearly, it, when, when we're seeing people with that level of depression or sense of hopelessness who are seriously ill and dying, we don't have time for to try uh, an SSRI like Paxil or you know Zoloft that may take weeks to work or not you don't know for a number of weeks may have side effects are hard to withdraw from uh, we just don't have time so we're we uh, need a, a better drug to you know 
to quote Huey Lewis and the news, um, we need a new drug. And this new drug ends up being a very old drug uh, where uh, within a single day, uh, people uh, can, can have their experience reframed. I mean, I should say we also have talking therapies, of course, and I, I built my career on counseling patients uh, who are facing the end of life on what has meaning for them. And, and looking at how we can help people to go through the tasks of life completion, uh, you know, uh, not just having an end uh, and making sure that there's nothing left unsaid or undone and uh, um, looking at what, you, what has given meaning to your life. All of this, in a sense, Mary, is a way to reframe your experience. Right? Psychedelic can help you do that in a single day. It's amazing. It's amazing. That's where the value is. And my, my colleagues in palliative medicine are very eager to, to restart large-scale research on these medications because we know that even our best counseling techniques and even our best current medication regimens leave a significant number of people who are still feeling like life may not be worth living. And we know, by the way, from, from Oregon, where physician hasten death has been legal for over 20 years, that the large majority, over three quarters of people who are choosing life-ending prescriptions are doing so because of feeling helpless, feeling uh, like life has no value, feeling a burden to others, uh, that life has lost all worth, if you will. And these medications are, are effective at just those syndromes. So why not, if, we, if, we, if there's a right to die, so-called right to die in those states, why shouldn't there be a right to try medications that may renew your sense of life worth living? Well, especially in an era where we spend so much money on research for cancer and other conditions, why not focus on this part? Because we're all going to die. We're not all going to get cancer, although the numbers are getting closer. But why why not focus on something that impacts everybody? Right. I mean, that's the question, right? Well, let's take some questions from social because we had a lot. Um, we got one from Frank via Facebook, and he says, my dad is from the Woodstock era and is open to recreational drug use. He's also dying and is hoping to use them um, during the last few days. How do I talk to this primary care physician about using these medications? First, I'm sorry that your dad is so ill. As, a, as somebody who was literally at Woodstock, I, I, I'm of that age and, uh, and I wish I had a better answer for you. First, his, his primary care doctor may not know about these things at all. Uh, you could find my uh, uh, article called Taking Psychedelic Seriously from the Journal of Palliative Medicine and give it to uh, the primary care physician. But in fact, these drugs are, are firmly illegal. And so the only access to them is in a clinical trial, and there's few of those currently open, uh, or illicitly, uh, like it's always been. Uh, and while there are some practitioners, if you have time and can look hard enough, uh, who may be willing to um, to do this at their own risk. Um, in fact, I don't have any particularly uh, good answers for you. I would say, though, that it's important that if your father is in this uh, stage of ill health, uh, to get a palliative care consult. 
to ask his primary care doctor or go right to the phone book, you remember phone books, or to Google and find uh, out where the palliative care team associated with his health system is and give them a call. They're far more likely to know about these medications for one thing. Uh, some of them may even have read that article I just mentioned, uh, but, um, but I don't have any good answers for how to um, have these medications prescribed because they are firmly illegal. What I've been advocating for is not the uh, illicit use of these medications, far from it, but the renewal of careful research about these medications so that uh, in a future that's not too distant, a few years from now, uh, they will be available to patients like Frank's dad. You mentioned that the research that had been done was kind of put to halt, I think maybe 60s or 70s timeframe. How did how have we gotten from that point to this point where you're, you and, and others in your, your lane are doing that research again? Some um, very dogged researchers have been um, carefully petitioning the uh, uh, DEA and the FDA for permission to, to uh, run very careful, small clinical trials. Uh, I have happened to be friends and associates with some of those researchers, uh, Dr. Bill Richards from Johns Hopkins, uh, Dr. Uh, Tony Bosses from NYU, Dr. Charlie Grobe uh, from uh, UCLA Harbor. And they, they uh, earned uh, permission from the FDA to conduct small clinical trials uh, very carefully of patients, usually with advanced cancer. And once again, their research uh, results um, mimic those of the earlier 1960s and 70s research showing remarkable therapeutic benefits. So the FDA has been um, uh, opening up its uh, clinical trial um, permission to researchers both in the um, uh, caring for people with serious illness uh, and life-threatening illness, but also for uh, treatment-persistent depression uh, and treatment-persistent anxiety, and also, by the way, addiction disorders. Isn't that interesting? Where people who are addicted to tobacco or mm -hmm. alcohol or even opioids, which is, again, a patterned behavior and thought where you don't, you can't imagine anything else but another dose of this medication or, or drug that could alleviate the suffering that you feel. Psychedelics open you up to new assumptions, to, to re-looking at that, that assumption that nothing else will work and that life is inherently not worth living if, unless you can get high again or get drunk again, right? That, that the research has shown that these people also can benefit dramatically from one or two sessions of psychedelics. I can't imagine the opportunities or the, the uses for it when you think about the number of people who are addicted to substances because of traumas in their life that they can't get past. If this could help you get past the trauma, you wouldn't need those drugs. Right, I should have mentioned PTSD, including mm -hmm. our veterans, which is exceedingly hard to treat, has been shown to be remarkably um, um, therapeutically ben, uh, benefited by uh, psychedelics, either psilocybin, or we haven't talked about MDMA, which is uh, the street name is Molly or ecstasy. 
And that is a different type of psychedelic that is more active in the emotional space rather than the cognitive or uh, assumption space, but also has been shown to be dramatically effective in uh, alleviating and sometimes basically curing people with treatment persistent or treatment resistant and persistent PTSD. Wow, so many uses. I could ask you my own questions all day, but I'm gonna go back to the questions from social. You talked about not all primary care physicians will help you because it is um, an illegal drug, but we had a question from Graham who did find a physician who was willing to help his mom, who's also also dying. Um, and he said, it's really hard to watch her suffer physically and mentally. Are physicians willing to help us with this psychedelic medication? But I'm afraid on her behalf that she will have a bad trip. Is that concern for real for me? So bad trips used to be real. They, in the, when, again, when I was uh, at Woodstock and, you know, in, in my college years, I certainly saw them. Um, but uh, psychedelics, when they are taken with careful screening of patients so that pe particularly people with underlying psychiatric conditions are, are not um, subjected to these drugs, uh, and when they are uh, taken with careful preparation where people have, an, have a sense of what to expect, and with a therapeutic relationship with a counselor who will be with them through the entirety of the experience, uh, bad trips never occur, basically. In all of the research, and all, and there's been substantial published research now collectively on psychedelics, there has not been a reported bad trip. This, uh, in a supportive environment, that uh, these drugs have proven again and again to be safe well, that makes me happy to hear. Um, I'm going to go one more question from social, and it comes from Yurtman. And he says, I've been a lifelong supporter of using THC for pain and comfort. Are these drugs the same or different? So THC uh, is an active ingredient in marijuana. And while it has been shown to be effective in some uh, uh, syndromes, particularly multiple sclerosis and associated pain, uh, and, and some, you know, some people with PTSD, uh, and uh, anxiety, it can be helpful for some people. It is a traditional drug, right? There is an intoxication, there is mental slowing, there is a, 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 a diminished uh, um, acuity of uh, reaction time, and it has to be taken repeatedly to maintain that therapeutic effect. It is a drug of the sort that, you know, uh, pain medications, uh, the uh, Valium type of benzodiazepines are all of that same nature. These uh, psychedelic uh, medications uh, induce an experience. I'm back to thinking about being shot into space for six or eight hours and having that, your worldview changed and then coming back. There's no intoxication uh, involved. It is a mind shift, a, a frame shift, if you will, of how you experience life in the world and your relationship to others. Um, so, it's, so THC, though it may well have therapeutic benefit for some people, is a more traditional drug in, in, in a sense. Well, I have kind of an odd question I'm gonna throw at you, and, and I don't know if you've had time to think through this one, but a lot of people at end of life also have Alzheimer's. And I'm wondering if you have an Alzheimer's patient, can they go through this process? Does it impact them the same way? Do we know, have we done the research? 
there's been very little research done with Alzheimer's uh, patients. Um, there, there are a, a few groups um, who are eager to, um, to, to have research on patients with early Alzheimer's disease who have most of their cognitive functions intact and are feeling deeply depressed and anxious about the future. And there are reasons to believe that these medications, again, with careful screening so that we're not uh, giving them to patients with schizoid tendencies or, or manic tendencies that we might induce a really bad reaction uh, that have um, uh, early Alzheimer's disease and, our, and the associated uh, secondary depression, anxiety, there, there's significant interest in seeing if we can't shift them to a perspective of seeing life, even in their difficult predicament, as being worth living. Again, that many is, is, is yet ahead of us. Yep, absolutely. Well, we're going to take our final break here on Future of Health, and when we come back, we will continue the conversation with Dr. Bayak. We are back on Future of Health, and again, we are joined by Dr. Ira Bayak, and we've been talking about psychedelics and end-of-life care, and Dr. Bayak, I just wanted to, to give you a chance. We've got, you know, I think another 10 minutes maybe, but what are the key takeaways you want people to leave this conversation with, knowing about psychedelics or knowing about end-of-life care and, and, and how maybe we don't handle it well in America? Like, talk, talk to me about what your, your, your five things you would want people to know maybe, um, <laughs> or your so big one, whatever serves you right. I, I would say, first of all, that um, Americans don't do dying well. That's for sure. We're, we're bad at it. Um, and it's not through anybody's ill intention. But our healthcare system is so focused on treating disease and using evidence-based treatments to, to address the pathophysiology of disease and helping people live longer, which is a good thing. But it's not the only thing. Because as good as our uh, treatments are, we have yet to make even one person immortal. So while we are treating cancers uh, and uh, and um, you know COPD and COVID infections and all of that, we also have to remember that people are more than their bodies. That we are all whole persons with a sense. Of, uh, of our internal sense of ourselves, uh, with emotions, with people who matter to us, with a sense of the transcendent. We are spiritual beings, not just cognitive or physical beings. And so um, we have to take care of people uh, as if they are whole persons. Um, and, and in addition to curing their disease or giving them treatments to forestall the progression of, of diseases, uh, we also have to take care of them emotionally, socially, and, and spiritually. That's number one. 
Number two is that palliative care is a new uh, medical subspecialty, and it may be the most important advance in medicine that few people even know about. That it is a brilliant model of caring well for whole persons, right? Their physical well-being, their pain, their shortness of breath, their lack of appetite, their difficulty sleeping, but also their sense of well-being within themselves and within their families. Um, third, I think it's important that people know that even people who are dying can experience a sense of well-being. You know, the first book I wrote was called Dying Well. Mm -hmm. and it's, a, it's a book of stories of people who taught me as I was caring for them as a hospice physician um, that well-being is possible. That w since we are more than our bodies, people can, some people can know that they are dying and still experience a sense of being right with the world, right with the people who love, they love and who love them. And while sad, can still have a sense that they are well within themselves and well within their families and within, and, and their relationship to nature, or if you prefer God, is intact. To the subject of this uh, uh, conversation, Mary, um, I want people to know that psychedelics are not a panacea, they're not a cure-all for, for suffering, but that they are a legitimate medication that has roots back in uh, human antiquity that deserve to be studied again using contemporary research methodologies and careful, controlled, circumstances so that people who are enrolled in these trials are safe and and can be studied to see how, what their subjective sense of well-being or dis or dis-ease is that i'm not in any way suggesting that people should go out and you know we should recreate the 70s and people should have access to these drugs illicitly far from it i worry about that but I do think that new research is absolutely warranted because people deserve the best care we can possibly give them. And right now, our, the, the arrows in our therapeutic quivers are limited. And so we, we want to bring new therapeutics to see if we can use them for the benefits of the people who look to us as doctors and nurses and healthcare providers for help. Well, Dr. Barak, you've mentioned families a few times, and I think it's one of the things that I love best about the Institute of Human Caring is that you don't just treat the patient, you treat their whole family. And since we've talked about how research is still ramping up and most primary care physicians don't offer psychedelic treatment options, what role can the family play in order to help their, their loved one and advocate on their behalf and then help you guys push this movement forward? If you're, if you're a family member like Frank and his, his father who um, uh, might benefit from the these drugs, I would just say th this is something to uh, learn about yourselves. Uh, if you haven't, you know, read about these uh, these medications, read read up on them. I I, I want to get in a plug for uh, the journalist Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind. He's done a remarkable job of of collecting the research and making it available to to uh, the average reading American. Um, so I would look at that, and then uh, eventually we're going to all have to be active as advocates for our loved ones to, um, to ask uh, their doctors about this, 
to uh, write letters to Congress and to the regulators so that people can have access to these medications or at least the therapeutic trials um, uh, legitimately and, and to simply um, uh, speak up. Uh, healthcare is not gonna change itself, right? We all have a stake in healthcare, those of us who are providers, but also all of us who ultimately are consumers of healthcare. We're all eventually patients and we're the family of patients. And we need to speak up and make sure, you know, if, if you have a loved one who's seriously ill, first, they need to get to palliative care. It's not just for dying anymore, right? It's for uh, living the best uh, life you possibly can with serious illness, getting the best care possible. But in the future, we're all going to have to be advocating so at least these therapeutic trials are, are reopened and we can uh, answer the question uh, of whether the promise of these medications, which look really good currently, is actually fulfilled once uh, enough uh, research is conducted so that we have definitive answers. You know, you bring up a really good point. Whenever we talk about palliative care, most of our listeners either don't know what it is or they don't know that they have access to it. And that's the one thing we hear most often is, I didn't know that I could have this for my mom or my dad or my grandma. What would we do? Do we start with our primary care physicians? Do we ask them if palliative care is an option? You know, we're at a situation uh, now where we all need to be strong advocates for, for those that we love. And, uh, and asking about palliative care, Yes, our primary care uh, physicians, but also our, our hospital medicine physicians, our oncologists, our cardiologists. And not uncommonly, when, when I say this to uh, audiences, when I give public lectures, somebody will stand up and say, well, we tried that, but you know, the, the oncologist said it's not time for that. Oh, you know, uh, uh, he's not that bad off. And that shows a lack of sophistication frankly, from the oncologist or the cardiologist saying you're not ready for that. You are ready for that. If you have a serious illness, palliative care can uh, be provided right along with, concurrently with those disease treatments so that while you're getting the best possible treatments for your disease, you're getting the best possible care for your comfort, your quality of life, getting your, your concerns addressed, whether those are related to your emotions of, of uh, anxiety or depression, or they're simply the pragmatics of, uh, you know, what do I take at night if I get a pain uh, that I that hasn't been alleviated by my first line pain medication? Or what happens if a crisis occurs at home? What happens if I get suddenly short of breath? Who do I call? Or if you're a family member and have worries about treating somebody's you know, a, a wound or helping them with their ostomy or something that, you know, the complexities of, of care, uh, caregiving as a family. Palliative care is specifically designed to support people through these very difficult but normal times of contemporary human life. As I said before, palliative care is the is one of the most important advances in, in medicine that few people know about. And, and sometimes even doctors don't know about it. So we have to advocate for those, for ourselves, if we're the patient or for those we love. Um, and, and I'm sorry that we haven't fixed it yet. As you know, I'm, uh, I'm uh, uh, an advocate strongly within the Providence Health System, but also uh, within American healthcare to expand the uh, access to palliative care, uh, expand the workforce of people trained 
in specialty palliative care and improve the quality of, of the care that everybody is provided and the quality of life that results. Well, wise words, my friend. Thank you, Dr. Bayak, for joining us today and to everyone for listening and sending in your questions. We look forward to future topics with more experts from Providence. Make sure to follow us on social media at Providence on Twitter and under Providence Health System on Instagram and Facebook. To learn more about our mission programs and services, visit future.psjhealth.org. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.